Welcome to episode 49 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's February 21st, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about the medieval translation movement. Our guest today is John Mulhall. John is a PhD candidate at Harvard University, whose dissertation examines the cultural upheaval by the medieval translation movement, where hundreds of new scientific and philosophical texts, among others, were translated from Greek to Arabic and then into Latin. John is also interested more broadly in Greek, Syriac, Arabic, and Latin medical texts, and has published an article on the topic, Plague Before Pandemics, the Greek Evidence for Bubonic Plague Before the Sixth Century, in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, and he has another forthcoming article on previously unknown medical responses to the Justinianic plague. So hi, John, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. This episode will be the first of two that bring us back to the ancient and medieval world to explore how people in the pre-modern world thought about and wrote about disease and medicine. This first one will explore the medieval translation movement, which is probably one of the most famous processes in medieval medicine as texts made their way from their Greek original to the Latin West by the high Middle Ages, where science and medicine were rediscovered, so to speak. Yeah, the translation movement is one of those central pillars of any history of medicine or history of science course, where you spend time to unpack, as we're going to do today, what it is and then also probably what it isn't. We aren't historians of medicine ourselves, so we thought it'd be great to have someone on to talk to us about the topic, and John seemed perfect for it since he's doing some new work on medicine and plague that few others have done in the past. So we get to learn about the translation movement and talk to someone else about the Justinianic plague too. So we thought that was a win-win. But before we turn to the translation movement, how are things in Jerusalem, Lee? I hear you got some snow, so did that paralyze the whole city? Yes, it did. We got about two or three inches of snow and the entire city basically shut down for about a day, a day and a half or so. But we've since obviously forgot all about it. I think the big story here, around me at least, is that the, the discourse is really heating up on what's going to happen with people who don't want to get vaccinated. And some of the questions that are being thrown around is whether, for example, shops could refuse service to people who haven't been vaccinated, or maybe hotels or airlines could refuse service. And maybe more close to home is whether the university can return to in-person teaching, but not really allow people who haven't been vaccinated in. Now, the state, the government, obviously wants everyone to get the vaccine for its own reasons, while a fairly substantial group of people refuse for their own different reasons. And there are really many different reasons for this that I've heard at least. So some people think that the vaccine hasn't been tested widely enough, and others believe that COVID is not real or isn't serious enough. A third group prefers to just keep their personal freedom and not get vaccinated. So that's where we are currently at, and I'm pretty sure this will continue in the near future. Yeah, just so you know, Lee, everyone is still praising your vaccination rollout in America every time I see it on the news. So the distribution program here has been very effective, at least comparatively speaking, to certain other countries. But I think at this point, there are less people who want to get vaccinated. I know that the government, different municipalities have been doing these kind of fun events for younger people, especially 
So come get a vaccine and get a pizza at the same time. Come to a party and get vaccinated at the same time. And these things happen usually pretty late at night, so like, let's say like 10 p.m. till midnight or so. If I was Julie, I would have held out for the come get vaccinated for a nice 21-year-old bottle of single malt scotch. That's what I would have held out for. But that's my personal taste. I know you're not a scotch guy. I'm pretty sure, Merle, they're not going to give scotch Definitely not nice scotch here for that, but it's a good try. But how about you, Merle? Are you still snowed in in Annapolis? We weren't for a little while, and then we got another snowstorm on Thursday, which made it so that the kids were home again for Thursday and Friday, which was fine. It's always nice to spend more time with my kids. But what I've noticed is that, you know, compared to the long march of 2020, I don't have nearly the adrenaline and the stamina that I did, you know, 11 months ago to keep going. Among other things that we did was start this podcast. And I know we spent a lot of time recording and actually re-recording and learning how to edit, for example, among many other projects we were doing. And so I basically seem to have almost limitless energy in retrospect. And now I'm just far more worn down and run down. And I don't know if that's because I just don't have any more adrenaline left. I'm just more tired or what it is. But it's been a lot harder to have the kids home for four days than it almost was in some respects for the first six, seven weeks of COVID. Well, I can definitely identify with that, having had my daughter at home for almost two months now. But do you know, Merle, what this is actually like? Someone told me recently. What's that like? It's like Groundhog Day. Like the movie. It's almost the same. Just keep reliving the same day over and over again. And where are you, John? And how are things like there? Uh, so I'm in California. Um, I'm, I'm in LA. And uh, things are okay. I think they're better than, than they were a few weeks ago. I am staying with in-laws. So I'm trying to be extremely careful, really taking no risks. So uh, my world is really limited to walking distance of my house. And I'm fortunately, people around seem to be wearing masks. Very thankful for that. But yeah, we're, we're really lucky that we can stay with family. Um, it's been fun to have that opportunity to get to spend some more time with my in-laws. Yeah, things seem to be going all right. I have to ask, John, are you really fortunate to spend more time with your in-laws? Well, they're going to be listening to this podcast. So uh, the answer, of course, is yes. No, that's that's a joke. Uh, I, of course, I, I actually am really, really happy to spend with them. They spend time with them. They're they're great. And how have you been doing research? Again, I'm I'm really thankful. There's a lot of material available online. I can reach out to friends, uh, ask for PDFs. Um, between all of that, it's not too bad. Of course, I I have a growing and a very long list of books that eventually I'm going to have to go and consult uh, before I turn in the next chapter of my dissertation. But uh, again, I'm, I'm fortunate there's just a lot of, a lot of resources available online nowadays, but uh, I'd eventually I'll be able to go back to Europe and be able to actually go to see the manuscripts that now I've been putting off seeing because of COVID. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a delay, but uh, I've been able to plot on. If you don't mind me asking, how long did it take you until you got everything sorted out and started being able to do research remotely, so to speak, from a library? 
Because I think for most of us, this was not the way we used to work before COVID. But I think now during COVID, I would say many, if not most of the people I know just somehow get along. So how long did it take you? So I had a little bit of an advantage because I was actually on fellowship the previous year in Europe. And so I, I had access to European libraries, but uh, I also had to do a lot of supplementing with uh, online material. And so before I left, I knew I was going to be traveling around. So I, I spent a lot of time actually at Dunbar Noakes getting a lot of PDFs and really trying to, to prepare myself for an itinerant lifestyle where libraries might not always be within reach. So I did have a little bit of an advantage and the, the learning curve, uh, I think, was a little bit flattened because of that. But yeah, even despite all that, when you actually aren't able to leave the house and go into a different space, that alone takes some time to get used to. You have to make a home office, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll just say one more closing note that I actually have to return to library books for the first time probably next week. And I'm not quite sure how that process is going to work, given that the University of Maryland has actually just itself shut itself down due to an increase in the number of COVID cases. So we'll see how that plays out. So with that discussion of books and research, maybe it's a good way to turn to your work. But before we get into the specifics of it, maybe you can just tell us what the term medieval translation movement means, and then we can tease out some of the specifics from there. Sure. So when we think about the translation movement, I think we probably should first start thinking about what it is and what it isn't. So first, what it's not. So the translation movement isn't a world history of science. So science and medicine don't stop in the Greek tradition or Arabic tradition once the translation movement begins. What is the translation movement? Well, there, there are various ways we could define the translation movement, but I, I would define it as a cultural and intellectual phenomenon from the late 11th through the 13th centuries, where dozens of scholars from around the Mediterranean translate hundreds of texts of philosophy, science, medicine, and theology from Greek and Arabic into Latin. This event allowed Latin scholars to enjoy the fruits of ancient Greek science and philosophy and the centuries of research carried out in the Islamic world. So the translation movement represents a sort of watershed moment in the history of medieval science and indeed in the history of European science because the texts translated fundamentally transform philosophy, science, and medicine as they are studied and practiced in the Latin West. So to give just a few examples of this, in astronomy, Latin scholars go from being unable to predict eclipses to being able to chart the course of the heavens with great precision. In mathematics, the translation movement introduces Latin scholars to algebra, which had been developed in the Islamic world. And the translations also promote the use of Hindu-Arabic numerals, the descendants of the same numbers we use today, which speed advanced calculation through decimal notation and the new placeholder, the number zero. And I imagine we'll talk more about medicine, but here I'll just quickly say that the translations not only introduced Latin scholars to the best surgical arts available in the Mediterranean, but they transformed the whole discipline of medicine, or at least contributed to this process by providing it with a detailed theoretical framework that helps secure medicine's position, not just as a craft, but as a learned science. So to sum up, like the scientific revolutions of the 16th and 17th centuries, the translation movement does not just introduce new doctrines, but it's part of 
a change in the way people organize knowledge, and it's part of a change in the paradigms within which people carried out their investigations. So, yeah, that was very helpful as a broad overview of the translation movement. So I have two questions. One is, why are these texts being selected, these texts that are translated? So that's, I guess, a question looking back into the past, into the the medieval past. And a question that looks into the more recent past, I guess, is when was this idea of a translation movement formulated in historiography? That is to say, when did scholars define this period, let's say, or this interchange of ideas, books, translations as a translation movement? Sure. So, uh, yeah, to start with the question of uh, what is translated and why these texts. So, as I mentioned, the translated texts span a wide variety of genres, but and I'd be happy to go into more detail on subjects like astronomy or philosophy, but I imagine your viewers are probably uh, most interested in medicine, so I can focus on that. So there are a variety of reasons why a translator might translate a given text, but for medical texts, we can see that translators are clearly interested in texts that help ground medicine and natural philosophy. That is, texts that do not just list symptoms and remedies, but explain why symptoms and diseases happen within a coherent picture of the way the natural world works. So to this end, we see from the time of the earliest translations an interest in translating Galen, for example, the famous physician of the second century AD, who provided a foundation for thinking about medicine in terms of natural philosophy. And similarly, we can see an interest in Arabic authorities who systematized and developed Galen's theories. For example, Avicenna, the 11th century Persian philosopher and physician. So Avicenna's work, The Canon of Medicine, was translated in the 12th century and would go on to serve as an essential textbook for centuries. And in fact, Avicenna was still being taught to medical students in European universities in the 18th century. And this interest in what we might call theoretical medicine ended up having a huge impact on the field of medicine helping solidify it not merely as a craft, but as a learned discipline that deserved a place at institutions of learning, including the universities that were just beginning to emerge at this time. And then to get to the second question, the when does this uh, idea of a translation movement uh, emerge in scholarship? So it's it, it has a fairly long pedigree. Uh, it, it goes back to 19th century scholarship, and it was made particularly famous, especially in the English-speaking world by Haskins, who famously wrote about the Renaissance of the 12th century. And it is a term that is uh, that, that modern scholars use, so it's not a term that people at the time used. But I, I still find it useful because, and this is one of the arguments I try to make in this dissertation, that it really is something that people at the time did recognize as a shift and that people at the time were aware uh, that at least the translators were aware that this was a period of great change in terms of what knowledge was available to them. So, and I particularly like the term translation movement because I like that word movement, because I think it captures the movement of people around the Mediterranean, the movement of ideas, uh, the movement of knowledge. And it's important though, to emphasize that this movement isn't, we shouldn't conceive of this movement and several great studies have actually come out recently that have emphasized this, 
we shouldn't conceive of this movement as replacing. So we shouldn't conceive of this idea of, oh, there was great stuff going on in the Arabic tradition, and now there's great stuff going on in the Latin tradition instead. So that very much is not the movement that we want to capture by this term. Although unfortunately, sometimes in the past, that was the case. But I think we're trying to move beyond that. Could I ask maybe one more introductory question that goes to the practical logistical side, which is who's paying for all this and how widespread are these texts? Sure. Yeah. So this is an excellent question. And it's something that I I talk about a bit in my dissertation. So to start with the question of who was paying for these, I think first uh, we have to think about who the translators were. So while there were lay translators, most of the translators were clerics of some sort, monks, deacons, priests, that sort of thing. And I think this is key to understanding how the translations were funded. In my dissertation, I tried to reconstruct the networks of the late 11th and 12th century translators. And one of the interesting things to come out of this research is how decentralized the process was. So when we talk about funding, I think we often have in our minds an idea of a wealthy patron or perhaps a beneficent king funding scholarly projects for ideological purposes. And this is indeed a popular way of thinking about the earlier ninth century Abbasid translation movement in Baghdad, for example. But for the Western medieval translation movement, I think this model is largely not applicable. Apart from Sicily, where we do see something like courtly patronage at work, the translators are in general, not translating texts for a king or a prince. Instead, I myself tend to think about the translators' networks as being more like a republic of letters. I argue in my dissertation that, by and large, the translators have in mind the interests of other scholars rather than the interests of kings and princes. They translated to fill the needs and meet the interests of other scholars around the Latin-speaking world. They were able to carry out their translations without having to get royalty on board because since many were clerics, they received their living from the church. And then to get at that second question that you asked, who was reading these translations? By the middle of the 13th century, really anyone who received a higher education would have been reading translations. So the translations had quickly become the state-of-the-art texts in their respective disciplines. They replaced earlier authorities and became required reading. If we compare what people were reading before the translation movement with the curriculum of the early universities in the 13th century, we can see how drastic the change had been. Newly translated texts are now foundational in fields of philosophy, mathematics, medicine, astronomy, and so on. I might go so far as to even say that by that point, to be well-educated really meant reading the new translations. So let's talk maybe a bit about the translators themselves. You mentioned that they were mostly clerics, but how much do we know about these people? Do we know whether some of them were, for example, women or whether some of them were, for example, lay people who translated for various reasons? How much do we know about that? Yeah. So uh, women could definitely be patrons of translations. And so there are the, some interesting instances of that. Uh, in fact, a, uh, a queen of Portugal was actually important in helping fund some early translations in the 12th century. And in terms of the who the translators were, so I can just highlight maybe three of the most important late 11th and 12th century translators of medical texts. Uh, so first, 
Constantinus Africanus, who's just a really amazing and fascinating figure. Uh, so the name Constantinus Africanus, you could translate that as Constantinus from uh, Ifriqiya, the uh, Islamic province of North Africa. And he comes to Southern Italy in the late 11th century, and he translates over 20 medical texts that quickly became extremely influential. So Constantinus Africanus was uh, evidently quite knowledgeable in terms of medicine and clearly seems to be practicing it, but he ends up becoming a monk at Monte Cassino where he carried out a number of his translations. So Constantinus Africanus, we can say eventually, was supported by a monastic community and that this helped him with his translations. So uh, another scholar, Gerard of Cremona, who's one of the most prolific translators in medieval history, uh, he translates a number of important texts of various genres, including medical texts. And Gerard of Cremona becomes a canon at the cathedral in Toledo. So there's a cleric. Finally, Burgundio of Pisa, there's an example of a layman. So Burgundio of Pisa was a jurist from Pisa. So he was able to carry out his translations without the institutional support of the church, which shows you that it's always dangerous to make broad generalizations. But I think just three famous translators who translate important medical texts, not a bad snapshot of the range of personalities that you'd find in the translation movement. So as someone who doesn't work on the translation movement. It's something I always teach in my surveys, and it's something that's a cornerstone of, as I said at the beginning, history of science, history of medicine. Why is the field of history, you know, to ask a meta question, kind of so obsessed with the translation movement? What makes it such a good story that people constantly talk about it all the time? Yeah. So I would say that Given how important the translation movement is, and we can talk about its broader historical implications in a minute, I think what actually surprised me sometimes is that there isn't more work done on it. There are just so many questions that need to be answered and so much potential for our perspective to change. Of course, there are amazing scholars who are working on it, but... and. I know that I'm biased, but I really do think the translation movement is so important. So I would encourage people who are thinking about topics to choose. There are just so many in the, in the translation movement, and uh, it would be great to have uh, new and more voices there. In terms of its popularity, I do think it is growing in popularity. And I think a major reason for this is that the story of the translation movement shows that the medieval world is a lot more complex than it's often given credit for. So the fact that Latin scholars are eagerly studying texts by Arabic-speaking Muslims and Jews, and that these texts go on to play a fundamental role in a transformative moment of European thought, I think that gives lie to anyone who wants to promote some sort of purist vision of the Middle Ages. So I think it has a lot of cultural relevance for us today. But another reason why I think it's growing in popularity is that there have just been some really amazing scholars who have done some amazing work over the past few decades, and they've made the field a lot more accessible, and they've laid excellent groundwork for future investigations. Yeah, so I think that's very helpful as a way to frame the discussion around the translation movement, understanding a bit about what it is, what it did, and maybe what it didn't do as much. Let's move on from here to discuss a topic that's closer to subject of this podcast, right? So disease and medicine. And you've worked recently on late antique medical texts. And it's sometimes assumed that these are really copies of 
earlier Greek knowledge with little, if any, changes? And is this really the case? I'm very glad to be asked that question because you're absolutely right that this is the unfortunate stereotype of late ancient medicine. So the answer, I think, though, is that Greek medicine continued to be practiced and studied. And as in earlier periods, the medical tradition continued to be developed in late antiquity. I think part of the reason why late antique medicine gets this reputation of just being copies is because we do have in late antiquity a number of encyclopedias and compendia of earlier works. Not all late antique medical texts that have survived are medical compilations, but even these compilations can be innovative. The authors of medical encyclopedias had the opportunity to systematize earlier works and give coherence to diverse bodies of knowledge. And they could also subtly make their own interpretations and interventions as well. But in addition to medical compilations, there was also a rich commentary tradition in late antiquity on the canonical texts of Hippocrates and Galen. And I'd be happy to talk more about this, but I think we'll probably be getting into some of my research on these commentaries in just a few minutes. So why is it that the field for such a long time did then think of much of late ancient medicine and probably moving forward, right, toward the even the medieval translation part as just blind coupling? Why did that notion persist and how has that notion evolved over the last several decades? So I think yeah, this stereotype of blind late antique copyists, I think it emerged in an earlier period where it was easier to assume that the late ancient world was an era of stultification and decline. And I think one reason why it stuck is because it's actually quite difficult to disprove. Because so much in late antiquity has been lost, it's often very difficult to prove with confidence that a given author is actually innovating. It's too easy to counter by simply suggesting that the author was not being innovative, but was relying on an earlier source that just hasn't come down to us. So in certain cases, this stereotype can be just about unfalsifiable. But I think just as important is that the late antique medical texts have not received nearly enough attention. So there are a few intrepid scholars who work on them and they've done amazing work, but late ancient medicine really is still an open field. So as we learn more about late ancient medical texts, I think we'll be able to move beyond the stereotype of blind late antique copyists. So I have a question about this. Can't we make that argument about any period, let's say, medicine in that period is actually innovative and it is actually moving forward in some sense. So we never would see decline in medicine. Do you agree with that? And if you disagree, so maybe point to a period in time in which you do see decline in medical knowledge, for example. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question. So I think one way to think about that is to think about, you know, this unfalsifiable stereotype. So I think you're absolutely right that in any period, you can look at it and try very hard to put that template on it that, oh, in this period, what we're seeing, if we see anything new, is actually not this period, but it must be coming from some other period. And so this is, again, this is really hard to disprove. So my argument is that uh, when I look at, as a historian of medicine at a period and I think about innovation, I try to say, what is new? Let's look at the discourse, the tradition, and let's see how things are changing. And my argument is when we see change, we should assume that this is 
development, innovation, revision, uh, that people are thinking about what it is that they're doing. And that's why we see changes. And that's why we see new things. I think that to then, that to add in this assumption rather, that, oh, the new things must not be the product of this period's own creativity, but is rather the product simply of cutting and pasting earlier periods uncritically. I think that assumption can be a very unfortunate one for research on a given field. So can I ask, because something Lee and I have grown more and more interested in is how to tell better stories. What is the better story then of late ancient medicine, right? If it's not just boring copying, but it has some kind of innovation, I mean, what's that longer story? What's that broader story that you could then tell? that makes it unique and makes it innovative or different or whatever term you want. Yeah. So because the field is really quite understudied, any answer to this question, I think has to be tentative. My research on bubonic plague and these medical sources though, leads me to believe that there's just far more innovation going on here than often assumed. I think to create the better story, I think we need to just completely remove this stereotype of decline that has plagued late ancient medicine and instead approach the texts as we would texts from any earlier period of antiquity. And I think when we do, I think we'll find that they are careful physicians capable of revising existing medical theories based on new experience, as I argue that they do in the case of their experience with outbreaks of the plague. I mean, my issue is that we could still probably say that any period isn't innovative, right? Doctors, practitioners, whoever are innovating in more or less any period, right? It's, it, it's, you can't falsify that argument, right? Because they do something and we, I mean, we observers give whatever they do the value of good, bad, innovative, not innovative, decline and stagnation or moving forward. And I think that there is a danger in causing some kind of inflation of innovation, right? It's it's not as if we're seeing, let's say, 2,500 years of innovation. That's one issue. And the other issue is that I think that builds into a narrative of continuous development or continuous moving forward, whereas that may have been a very popular narrative, let's say, in the mid-late 20th century. I'm not sure I still buy into that today as like the progress of civilization moving forward from the dark free Greek antiquity to 21st century science. Well, I'm really glad that you raised this point, Lee, because I think what's really important, though, is when we talk about innovation, when I talk about innovation, I don't necessarily have in mind this idea that this is innovation with a telos of eternal progress, right? When I talk about innovation, I'm talking about doing new things. I'm talking about thinking about the world in different ways. Uh, if someone else wants to build a teleological narrative where this ends with modern science, then by all means, you know, that's an argument that they can make. What I mean when I talk about innovation is are they thinking about the world or are they thinking about medicine in new ways? And can we, as scholars, try to reconstruct their view of the world, their view of medicine. And when we reconstruct that, does it look different than previous eras? And my argument is, is that in late antiquity, we can see that they are continuing to revise earlier theories and that this leads them to see the world in new and different ways in certain cases. And to me, that's what I mean when I talk about innovation. So 
I think it sounds to me likely that we're on the same page about uh, not wanting to assume that there's this eternal progress, linear development from the dawn of time to the present, because that's certainly not how I would see things. But the idea that uh, as historians interested in how people thought and understood the world, that it's also not just one flat line of people thinking the same way that they thought in the age of Hippocrates until the scientific revolution. So my argument really is that by trying to see not as either oh progress or oh decline, but instead thinking about what's new, what changes, what's innovative, this is actually a remedy for a, a more constrictive way of viewing these texts. Yeah, I wonder for this discussion how much comes down to the word innovate, right? Which has an idea of progress and development to an extent. But I just want to say real quick that I think that innovation does not necessarily imply progress in any sort of teleological way. That when scholars are talking about medical innovations in late antiquity, which I think is a pretty common way to describe changes that scholars are seeing in certain periods that I don't think that we should impute upon scholars who make those arguments a, a commitment to any sort of progressivist narrative. Maybe the issue here is, again, the way we see the word innovation, right? And especially in the 21st yeah. century context in which applications I read say, this person is innovative or I do innovative work people market themselves as innovative as being a very positive thing. So that's the way we think about that term. And when we use it about the past, we might not mean exactly the same thing. But to move on, so one of the infectious diseases that, that we happen to speak a lot about, which is actually our house favorite, is the Justinianic plague or the first plague pandemic. So maybe first, could you bring us up to date on plague and the medical sources? Let's start maybe before 541, so before the onset of the Justinianic plague. Yeah, so a little while ago, I, I argued in an article in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine that it was possible to identify the earliest known evidence of plague in the classical Mediterranean. So specifically, I argue that there's textual evidence that bubonic plague was affecting the Mediterranean of classical antiquity centuries before the famous Justinianic pandemic. So I became interested in this question of whether there was plague in the Mediterranean before the Justinianic pandemic back in 2015, when a team in Denmark published a major DNA study that showed evidence that bubonic plague was affecting populations in the Bronze Age. And in fact, it was affecting them as close to the Mediterranean as Armenia. So this DNA study did not cover the classical period. And still, as of today, no studies have yet published DNA evidence for plague in the classical world. But I was struck by the new DNA evidence that Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that causes plague, was found in an individual so close to the Mediterranean just a few centuries before classical antiquity. This, to my mind, really opened the possibility that plague may have reached the Mediterranean before the Justinianic pandemic. So to answer this question, I use the tools of modern philology to identify and analyze potential descriptions of bubonic plague in ancient Greek literature before the Justinianic pandemic. So using text to search for disease is wrought with methodological challenges, and I'd be happy to talk more about these difficulties in a minute. But in brief, I combine my own textual analysis with the most recent biomolecular research on the natural history of plague. And the results of my study led me to conclude that the textual evidence suggests plague was in the Mediterranean by around 100 AD, when a physician known as Rufus of Ephesus describes in great detail 
a disease that I'm able to identify as a confident description of bubonic plague. But, and this was a very surprising result of the study, there are no confident descriptions of plague in the Hippocratic Corpus, a collection of texts written around the 5th and 4th centuries BC. Nor are there any identifiable descriptions in the extremely massive Corpus of Galen, the famous physician from the 2nd century AD. So the textual evidence of plague is confined to a period after the Hippocratic texts, and then the textual evidence suggests plague is present by around 100 AD when Rufus describes it. But then finally, it is not described by Galen. And so we can conclude that by his day in the second century AD, it was likely present on a sufficiently small scale or perhaps even not at all, since it did not attract his attention, given how vast and detailed Galen's writings are about the disease regimen in the Mediterranean. To ask a broader question first, how does this study in any subsequent studies perhaps overturn the existing paradigm of how we think about plague in three large pandemics and as causing these massive effects every time it appears? Yeah, great, great question. So I think it raises some really important questions about the origins and causes of the Justinianic pandemic and about the history of plague in general. So First of all, I think it's important to emphasize that just because a plague is present in a region does not mean it must have been a pandemic or even that it must have been widespread. So to this day, plague is endemic to large parts of China and even to the Western United States. But on average, there are only around seven plague cases each year in the United States. So the fact that evidence suggests plague was present in the ancient Mediterranean does not mean we have to imagine that there was a pandemic. In his descriptions of the illness I argue was is plague, Rufus says that the illness is seen especially in Libya, Egypt, and Syria, but we can't ascertain how prevalent it was from the texts alone. For this, we need to use the text to help us identify DNA evidence of Yersinia pestis in ancient remains. But the fact that the text suggests plague was present and perhaps endemic in the ancient world opens up new possibilities of specifically how the first plague pandemic, the Justinianic pandemic, began. So we can now ask questions such as why wasn't there a pandemic before late antiquity? What prevented ancient plague from reaching the level it did in the 6th century? It also raises questions of whether the Justinianic pandemic may not have been reintroduced from outside the Mediterranean, but perhaps it was an intensification of endemic plague. I think at this point, it's still probably more likely that plague was reintroduced to the Mediterranean in the 6th century, but I don't think we can entirely rule out at this point the possibility that the pathogen of the Justinianic pandemic may well have been in the ancient world before the 6th century. Yeah, I've also thought about how could we determine whether plague was already present in the Mediterranean world just before the Justinianic plague or pandemic or whether it was introduced. I'm not sure how we could answer that other than just wait until someone finds remains of plague that we can date to pre-541. And I'm sure that would be an interesting discovery that would revise a lot of the research. But to maybe move on to the second part of the earlier question that I asked, so what happens after 541 with regards to the Justinianic plague? So as someone who's worked on the more historical side, I obviously know that there are a lot of histories, chronicles that start referring to diseases, 
with or maybe without plague-like symptoms. But what about the other ancient sources and specifically the medical sources? Do you these become more common, for example, after the onset of plague, the onset of the first plague pandemic? Yeah, so this brings up a question that I answer in uh, the forthcoming article that you guys mentioned uh, that'll be coming out in the Journal of Late Antiquity, uh, where I talk about the medical response to the Justinianic pandemic. So up to now, the consensus had been that medical authors writing during the Justinianic pandemic do not talk about the pandemic, which would, of course, be surprising given that the Justinianic pandemic was widespread and the disease, bubonic plague, is really horrific. It's not the sort of thing that's easy to ignore. So I argue that physicians at the time of the Justinianic pandemic do discuss the plague and that, in fact, they develop quite sophisticated ways of understanding, diagnosing, and trying to treat it. So to get back to the question of how common medical interest in plague is, what is striking is that after Rufus of Ephesus, around 100 AD, there is really no development and hardly any evidence of interest in Rufus's description of this illness right up until the time of the Justinianic pandemic. And then at exactly around the time when the Justinianic pandemic was beginning, we all of a sudden see medical authors discussing a widespread disease involving swollen lymph nodes, in Greek, bubones, and they are using the same language that contemporary historians use to describe outbreaks of the Justinianic pandemic. And here it's really important to emphasize that they're not just copying Rufus's earlier description, but they're writing totally new accounts unrelated to Rufus's text. So we're really seeing a, a real change in the medical text brought about by the Justinianic pandemic. As someone who works on this pandemic, this is, I think, a very exciting discovery of a new text about this pandemic. But I have to ask, why hasn't anyone noticed these texts before? Is it that no one works in late ancient medicine enough? Or is it that the history of medicine is separated from a simple history people who work on plague or what's kind of happening that no one went through these sources before, especially because they're in Greek, yeah. which is something that has been done quite a bit. Yeah. Excellent question. So in my research, I've began looking actually at the late antique sources. And when I came to some of the descriptions that I ended up confirming as descriptions of plague for the first time, I was actually quite unsure. And I was unsure enough that I, I went back and I wanted to really trace the history of these words all the way back to the beginnings of Greek literature. So words like bubones, to get a really firm understanding of what this term means, because again, there are all sorts of different illnesses out there that can involve bubones, which in Greek simply means the swelling of the lymph nodes. So just because you see the term bubones in a source does not mean that you're dealing with plague. So what I did was I traced this back and that led to the first article on Rufus of Ephesus. I found a lot of interesting stuff in this earlier history. So I ended up writing that article. But uh, the impetus for that came from really wanting to be sure that what I was finding in these late ancient texts was really plague. And so once we do look at the full history of these words, going all the way back to the beginning of Greek literature, we can see just how drastically different the late ancient medical texts language is, how much it changes at exactly the time of the Justinianic pandemic. Some of these changes, if you don't have that history, can look pretty subtle. So one of the biggest things that I found that was, uh, that was new, that was used by both the historians and by these uh, medical accounts that 
looked suspiciously like plague was this use of both bubones and some version of the word loimos, which means pestilence or disease. And so these two words almost never come together in Greek literature before the Justinianic pandemic. Really, the only case is really Rufus of Ephesus' account of plague. But then all of a sudden in the sixth century, historians start talking about this loimos, this pestilence that comes with bubones. And this is again, basically unprecedented. And then at the same time, medical literature starts revising some of their accounts of bubones and they start adding in words like, oh, and it comes with in a loimos. And so this allowed me to uh, start developing a kind of criteria for analyzing and confirming these potential descriptions of plague in the late antique medical sources as actually confirmed descriptions of plague. Just a quick follow-up on the technical side. Are these late ancient Greek sources in the thesaurus linguae Graeci? That is to say, for the people out there less familiar, the fairly comprehensive database of Greek texts that exists online and you can search. So I think all of them are. When I first started this, actually a number of them were not. So I relied on some really amazing philologists of earlier generations. And some of actually, uh, John Duffy's work on this actually was fantastic, um, who have really great wordless indices, things like that. So it really did start out very low tech. Um, I think today, now all of these sources are on the TLG, thank goodness. So anyone who has a TLG subscription can go and find these sources. But uh, yeah, when I was when I was first starting out, some John of Alexandria is one of the sources I look at, and I believe he was not on the TLG when I first started out. So, uh, but the TLG was an invaluable resource as I did this study. Um, it really is um, an amazing tool that it, that brings philology really to a new level because you can instantly get readouts of words in Greek literature. Now, I'll just say real quick that while the TLG is a tool, so Bubones is a really good example of why you also really have to uh, do a lot of uh, heavy lifting of your own because Bubones has a number of different meanings. It doesn't even just mean swollen lymph glands, which again can happen in all sorts of illnesses, uh, but it also can mean just the lymph nodes themselves. And so you have to wade through something like over, I think it was over a hundred uses that I was looking at just uh, even like before Rufus of Ephesus. And so you just have to read all of these passages to then rule out, oh, is this talking about lymph nodes? Yes. Is it talking about swollen lymph nodes? Oh, okay. All right. That goes in the maybe pile. And then you read those in greater detail, et cetera. So before we start wrapping things up, maybe John, you could tell us a bit about this new knowledge that is being generated or, or written really during the first plague pandemic. Who are these people? Give us maybe one example of one person who's writing and what exactly are they writing during the pandemic. And that would actually kind of lead us to, to the final question about the COVID comparison. So I argue that the medical authors discussing the Justinianic pandemic provide sophisticated ways of diagnosing the illness, treating it medically, and understanding it physiologically. So just to take one example here. So Paul Savigina, a seventh century medical scholar who wrote a hugely popular medical compilation famous for its richly detailed descriptions of surgeries. So Paul Savigina's account is particularly valuable because he tells us how to treat the plague. So Paulus recommends medication designed to expel the unwanted matter from the body. 
And if the patient has the strength, he suggests venesection. And this unwanted matter is the result of pestilential air that's breathed in by the body that heats up excess matter inside your body that then both causes the swollen lymph glands and it heats up the body causing fever. So he first says you want to expel this excess matter. And then, and here's what's, what's really cool, Paulus is a surgical expert. And so he also brings up the possibility of surgical intervention in plague patients. But what's striking is how methodical and realistic Paulus's recommendation is. Since he was aware of how risky surgery was in his day, Paulus recommends surgical intervention in plague patients only in one case, if a bubo is suppurating. Then the physician should try to remove the pus. He says that the first step is to try to remove it using topical medication, and only then, if all else fails, you should try to remove the pus using an incision. So what's particularly impressive about Paulus's account is that this surgical intervention to relieve a separating bubo corresponds actually quite well to modern clinical procedure. And in general, I think Paulus's treatment would likely have been just about the best that one could hope for in the pre-antibiotic age. Yeah, no, thanks. That, that's very helpful. And, and each time I hear these stories or these descriptions, I try to imagine how this would actually look like in the 7th century in this case. And what kind of bandages would they use? And where would they operate on these people? And which tools and, and so on? So that's definitely something interesting for me, at least, as well. And I guess this does bring us to the final question, which is kind of like a becoming a tradition on this podcast, I'd say. And the question here is about the comparison to COVID. So between the way we are responding to COVID over the past year or so, and the way in which sixth and seventh century medical authors were responding to their pandemic, the, the Justinianic plague. Yeah, I think, I think in one comparison that's just very close to my work is how pandemics often do stimulate medical thought. And it's clear that in the time of the Justinianic pandemic, they are using their experiences, they're looking out into the world, and they're seeing this uh, disease and how it's affecting people. And they're changing the way that they understand the medical theories that they've been schooled in. It's changing the way that they're thinking about uh, disease and health. And again, the word I, I keep going back to is that they are innovating in response to this unprecedented challenge. And I think in the best cases, we're seeing how the modern scientific community and the public health community is really trying to innovate to respond to the new reality of this pandemic. In fact, one course that I hope to teach sometime in the future is uh, the relationship between pandemics and medical development. And I think in the Justinianic pandemic now, we can add that now to a list of epidemics and pandemics that have um, helped spur changes in the way people think about disease and health. So I think with that discussion of medical developments, dare I say, innovations, we can bring this episode to a close. So I want to thank you so much, John, for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. So it's always funly to return to a topic we've worked a lot on, but to hear new angles, new texts, and new ideas about it. So that was a really nice discussion of some scientific texts that you and I have never looked at before. 
Right. And I think this also shows that you can still innovate, right? You can still like come up with new ideas and connect them to old ideas, even an old discussion, which I, I know, Merle, you felt sometimes that everyone keeps just saying the same thing. I think what John proves is that actually, no, you can innovate. You can bring in, again, not only new ideas, but also new texts into this discussion. Yeah, I'll just say it's always good. And maybe it's a paradigm that younger scholars are often the ones who are looking to new texts and new possibilities for how to incorporate them into build new narratives. I guess we're kind of biased here, right? But as a friend once told me, if you want to make a, a name for yourself, or if you want to get a job more specifically, the best strategy is to find the biggest window you can and just throw a block through it. One thing, as someone who works on late antiquity, that I thought was very interesting from the podcast, that he mentioned actually a trend that seems to be the case in all late antique literature, at least all that I've worked on, which is this assumption of blind copying, right? That people weren't doing new stuff or thinking differently in much of late antiquity, that I think in different subfields, history of medicine being the case here, still needs to be removed from the general discussion. It seems to me that this is still a notion that people have about late antiquity more broadly as being this less interesting, boring, dark, gritty, but something that's not classic. And there seems to be some kind of, of decline, which people just assume happened, even though within the field, I think the notion is very different, right? Within the field, we've started to look at late antiquity as being this very interesting, innovative, again, to use that term, in which a lot of things are going on, but I think outside the field, it's probably still not the way most people see it. One other facet I thought was interesting, and this is going back to both the translation part and also the plague part, John very much comes out of this as a historian of medicine, broadly construed, if we put these two broad buckets he works in together. And it's interesting to see from his perspective, how history of medicine has not been attached to plague historians, if we can call ourselves that very often, how those two fields actually don't speak to each other and how they kind of float separately from each other. Right. And if I remember correctly, or at least I can't remember, seeing anyone else who tried to fit late antique medicine into the Justinianic plague discourse until I read John's work. Merle, you and I have looked at a lot. I'd say almost everything that has been written on the Justinianic plague, and I don't remember seeing anything like this. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely correct. That's why I was very excited to read the early version of the article. I also think, you know, the article makes a very important point and his work does as a whole, which is that a lot of these pandemic changes are, as we've talked about on this podcast very frequently with our guests, very small and local, we might call them, right? That they're incremental changes that happen. So I, I think about this going back to our podcast with Christos Lanteros, who works on the third plague pandemic. And he would say that the third plague pandemic brings a lot of change across really many aspects of the global world. But they're very particular changes to particular places involving ways of thinking and ways of organizing which are very, very different than the arguments that are made for 
pre-modern plagues, which are basically said to just, you know, overturn everything happening in the world. And that the really nice thing that this article is doing is connecting some of those other ways of thinking about what plagues and pandemics do or might do to society. Right. And this brings us back to the challenge of studying pre-modernity, which is the lack of sources, right? So whereas working on the third pandemic, you could have a very high resolution of what's going on in different places. Once you go back into the deeper past, so to speak, there's much less we can work on. And that's where I think exactly these texts, right? The medical texts can come into play. Yeah. One wonders here how much some of the pre-modern exaggerations we might say about the effects are driven by people needing to have stakes in the argument, right? This is why I study what I study, because it has profound effects on all of the history of the world. Right. That's important. And I think that it at least partially drives the scholarly discourse surrounding these questions. And this actually connects to a different point I had to make, which is, again, this idea of finding new stuff, new stuff to say, new questions to ask from old sources, new answers to provide to those new questions or old questions. But I think there's still quite a bit to be done. Personally, I could say that I've been reading or rereading both Procopius and John of Ephesus, two sources on on the Justinianic plague. And I think that I've been encountering things that I haven't noticed before, even though I read both these sources, I don't know how many times, but just going through them over and over again within a different context, a different, I guess, psychological context or a different real world context has been very helpful to me. And I would also say that teaching has been very helpful in this regard, right? So when you teach these things, it forces you, forces me at least, I'm not sure if everyone does that, but it forces me to look at them again, come up with new questions, kind of see if I forgot anything. So that's, that definitely has been useful for anyone who's on the job market and has to figure out how to explain <laughs> the connection between research and teaching. So that for me would be a, a strong line. Well, maybe we can do a podcast someday on Lee's thoughts on teaching philosophy statements if you so desire. Well, you know, we should have an episode about the job market. <laughs> that could be a fun episode to have. I'll put fun in quotes, Lee. But maybe for this last segment, Lee, we can talk about something that I mentioned in a previous podcast, which are kids' books. So I was thinking about this because my kids have a very hungry caterpillar book, which is in Hebrew, as you know, which they like to read. And my son insists on calling the sausage in it a red banana, even though he knows it's not a red banana. But in any case, do you have a favorite book that your daughter likes to read? So Merle, first of all, I want to tell you that you're a model father for me. So I actually visited you a few times and I met your kids when they were younger, obviously. And we did read a few books, including The Hungry Caterpillar. And I think that all the books I remember from your place, I currently have, and they're definitely favorites of my daughter as well, right? So The Hungry Caterpillar is definitely one. Then there's Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? Another one. Five Little Monkeys, which I've also seen at your place. Where's Spot, which is also like a pretty big favorite here. 
I read all these to her in English. So she recognizes stuff now. She's like one year old. I think The Hungry Caterpillar, which I actually read today before she went to sleep, is probably one of her favorite books. She does not confuse the sausage itch because she doesn't really understand what that is, but that might happen as well in the future. Wherever this was in this episode, I'm going to mark it and save it and replay it over and over again for calling me a model father. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm here for, just to, to help your ego. I always need a bigger ego. No, but it is funny that when you think about it, right? So there's like this small corpus, the canon, right, of, of children's books. I think The Hungry Caterpillar is like 50 years old at this point, right? And it's like extremely popular and worldwide, I guess, or at least partially worldwide. So those classics are classics for a reason. Well, I think the only good books were from 50 years ago and we just don't make any new ones and we don't innovate anymore, Lee. We just repeat what already exists. I'm still waiting for The Hungry Caterpillar 2, the sequel. But I did hear there's a book, I think it's called The Very Hungry Zombie, which is kind of like a built on The, the Hungry Caterpillar. Well, you do love zombies, Lee. So maybe I'll buy you that for your birthday. Which is coming up. But I guess that on this discussion of children's books, some of our fond memories with children and us appreciating to have fun with our children, as Merle started this episode, I guess we can probably conclude this episode. And as usual, thank our sponsors at the LePage Center for funding us and our webmaster, Virid Rikanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and learn from a model father.